Welcome to Writers Forum, a weekly presentation of WRBH-FM. I'm Sherry Alexander, and this week we're talking to the authors Therese Toulouse and Barbara Ewell, and the book that they co-edited is called Sweet Spots, In Between Spaces in New Orleans. Welcome to Writers Forum, folks. Thank you so Hi. much for having us. Yes. Thank you. Well, we'll talk to Therese for a minute first. It's okay if I'm not calling you your honorifics and your honors that professors. That is fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, now, you were at Tulane for a long time. 29 years. And you re- you spent some time after that at uh, Boulder, but really Tulane is your love of... And um, you were an English teacher, an English yes, professor, but you also taught American Studies, was it here? You were in charge of the program? Yes. And I have to do this disclaimer. I know Barbara was a colleague at Loyola, and Correct. you were um, a distinguished professor at Loyola, and you've written and co-edited several books before, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, but you're both retired now? Yes. One year for me this month. Yeah. Well, I'm really excited about this new book. I guess, Barbara, you would start off and tell us, how did you come to write a book called Sweet Spots in Between Spaces in New Orleans? Well, actually, it's really Teresa's idea. And so I came into it kind of secondarily. So maybe, Teresa, you should talk about how you got started. Well, this actually all started in the late 80s when I taught a course with uh, the late Malcolm Hurd, who was an architect at at, uh, Tulane School of Architecture. Um, And some people might know him as the author of French Quarter Manual. So he and I taught an interdisciplinary course on the city on food, space, music, and ritual. And it was called New Orleans as a Cultural System. And Mac became very ill um, in 2000, and he died in 2001. But I had the opportunity to meet with him every Thursday, and we talked about turning some of the material from the course into a book. And later, and I've been working on this now since 2001, thinking about how I might keep my promise. So we came up with this notion of in-between space. Um, A number of people helped me. Barbara had a small seminar at Loyola. And we bandied about the notion of this concept or this lens of in-between space as a way of looking at different phenomena in the city. So you start with architecture, and then you work your way towards the kinds of stories and performances and practices that uh, architecture uh, comes to take on. So that's, well, that's well, how it and came thank about. Thank you. And, and then when Barbara, when you came along, um, it kind of had evolved to include as... Um, Teresa said not only um, architecture, but music and literature and so on. Geography, uh, yeah. Women's well, studies. Culture studies, right. African American studies. Philosophy. Well, it's just fascinating. And it's, of course, it's our tricentennial, so that's an interesting angle to present it um, at this time. I'll, I guess I'll ask um, Barbara this what, what exactly does interstitial space mean? What does that mean? Well, interstitiality comes from architecture primarily and the sciences, and it's it's essentially a space that is uh, marginal, that is on the edge of things, but defines uh, defines the architectural space. Uh, I don't know, Therese, Why don't you explain? <laughs> Porches, you said. Yeah, it's odd. 
in between spaces in New Orleans would refer to those spaces that um, are that don't get in the way of primary functions. So if you've got people running around the house doing things, you can always throw the baby or the whoever out on the porch, right? So porches, uh, galleries, courtyards, uh, passage, port cocher, all those well-known New Orleans terms. Uh, but we also have people who are really interested in crawl spaces and dormers and overhanging roofs, all these different dimensions of space that are kind of in between. They're not there in the center of the house. Now, you can do the inside. You can talk about really, really high um, ceilings, for example, that were uh, the fans just disappear into that invisibility. Or you can talk about hidden staircases for servants or for trysts or for whatever one could do with hidden staircases. Or so all these little in between, as the barber said, sometimes marginalized spaces um, that start to take on different kinds of stories and meanings. And that's what interested us in the term sweet spot. So you could have a spot, but that it took on a kind of sweetness. And the sweetness can be in quotation marks. It could be ironic, sarcastic, or apocalyptic if you wanted it to be. Well, and several of your authors re- refer to the sweet spot uh, in musical terms. Yes, exactly. We're getting it from jazz and the place where the sound resonates um, at its best. Um, whether this is between the jasmine and the dancers or the jasmine and the audio equipment, as you see in Bruce Rayburn's essay, wonderfully. Well, let's just, we can hit a few of them. Um, I really, really enjoyed this book. I'm um, well, thank you. part-time tour guide now, besides <laughs> being a journalist, and I really learned so much from it. The first author, I guess his name is Scott Bernard, wrote about interstitial urban space, and it's so interesting how we, because of the way New Orleans was laid out, we have these places in town that where the streets don't meet. Right. Barbara. Right. Wanna... Yeah. Well, I mean, what Scott does in the first essay, and by the way, just talking about the organization of the of the book, I mean, Teresa laid it out in such a way so that. We begin with architecture, and Scott's essay in some ways defines the the beginnings of interstitiality, the the way the city is itself laid out along the river, the curve of the river, but also the plantation property lines that stretch from the river so that you have an intersection, basically, of the crescent and those arbitrary plantation lines. And that's what creates those pleats and notches as Scott so wonderfully metaphorizes those uh, little odd spaces that show up. But those little interstitial spaces become markets, become gardens, become places, odd places where the streets come together, where houses intersect. And so those interstitialities in many ways define how the city interacts with itself, you know, how it, how it emerges and, and defines itself. Well, because other cities can start and end and currently have grids, but we tried to put a grid on top of this arpent system where right. because of the curve of the river, you know, it was kind of like uh, the, the streets weren't parallel. And right. so then when the two uh, lands would meet, there was this little space left mm-hmm. over. Well, I read a wonderful essay about building cathedral roofs 
you know, the domes. So in order to hold them up, they had to do all these different, this work with different kinds of brick and mortar. So there were these empty spaces that allowed for painting. And I think that in a way, what Scott's talking about is, you know, trying to fit all these different kinds of grids next to each other because it developed historically over time is that all these possibilities for the aesthetic showed up. Like, you know, these little markets or hidden little blocks or little views of houses that are bounded because Britannia does a jog. So it feels like you just got a little neighborhood and then suddenly you get another jog and you get another little neighborhood. So it's just wonderful what shows up unconsciously. You didn't mean it to be there, but it shows up and, and provides incredible possibilities. Well, then I guess, I don't know if she's related, Carrie Bernard. That's his spouse. Um, she wrote the next one, Connection, Separation, and Mediation in New Orleans Architecture. And that's where she de defines things like crawl spaces and you know, gives us an idea of some of these things. What about um, Degas' New Orleans spaces? That was pretty interesting. Marilyn Brown taught for years at Tulane in the art history department, and she's a specialist on Degas, specifically Degas in New Orleans, even though she's got uh, other materials about him in France. But uh, this essay is about... Uh, the ways in which Degas represents in between spaces. So how does he represent thresholds or how does he represent balconies? And finally, how can the very famous painting, A Cotton Office in New Orleans, be read as an in-between space as well? And I think where the essay really moves in an interesting way is to show how Degas had real anxieties about class and race because there were um, Creoles of color in his family and the Creoles themselves had their own anxieties. So she talks about porches as places where they could shelter their Creole complexions um, or she talks about thresholds where it was very hard to uh, distinguish the children from the nanny. Um, and then she talks about the cotton office itself as being an in-between space between the cotton fields um, of Mississippi and the cotton mills in Manchester. Uh, I thought that was so interesting. When we give tours of the Garden District, we talk, we show um, the house where his uncle The Musson family, yeah. Who, and he was so prejudiced against being a Creole and a Catholic, he only stayed there for a few years. Mm. And it, most of the people in the Garden District were Protestants. They were yes. Americans or Brits. And, and I said, even though he was pretty prominent, he was head of the Cotton Exchange for a while. He moved to a different part of town because people were prejudiced. And and as you say, his family um, had a range of color. And I think she shows in one of the paintings, you know, there's darker skinned um, members of the family, Creoles and lighter skinned and so on. Yeah, and I think that Degas himself had not realized this till he came to America. Mon oncle d'Amérique, you know, visiting the family and realizing that he was part of a family he didn't know he was a part of. Um, and she talks about him as being in a kind of in-between space as well, that he's relegated to the balconies where he can paint people, but that's the female space, and he's not down with the boys at the office. <laughs> well, till, till we had that exhibit, I don't remember Oh, yeah, the Degas was. in New Orleans, yeah. I mean, I always thought of Degas as ballet dancers. Mm -hmm. I didn't even realize he right. painted anything right. else. And right, right, right. That was a wonderful exhibit. Well, and then I guess we come to your your, your contribution to, to your own book, um, John Galsworthy's Old Time Space at the St. Louis Hotel. Tell us about that. 
I picked that particular sketch, and it's from a 1912 collection called The Inn of Tranquility um, that Galsworthy put together. So this is long before the Forsyth Saga and the kind of books that made him famous. He's kind of a young writer at this point. But he brought his new wife, Ada, who was actually had been married, I think, to his cousin. Or it was a illicit affair originally. But he brought her to New Orleans, which seems appropriate. But uh, he went through the hotel with an old Creole guide and... Uh, ended up writing a story about it. And apparently there was an old woman who lived in this rambling wreck of a hotel. It had been built in 1836, and he visits in 1912. And she had, she was kind of gaga, and she took him on a tour of, of the hotel. So he comes back and he writes this sketch about it. And my friend Mac loved that sketch. So I decided to write about the spaces of the St. Louis. And as I got into it, I got into the history of the hotel. And there's several people, including one of Barbara's colleagues, who teaches a course um, including the hotel. But what struck me is how uh, it's almost like the fall of the House of Usher, you know, that Galsworthy walks you through the moldering spaces of this hotel and evokes what happened there. And we know that the hotel was a site of slave auctions under its huge 86-foot dome. Um, we know that pieces of I think of it's it, most infamous today when you, when you walk around yes. the French Quarter. People talk about that's it's claim to fame or infamy or infamy i mean well, we, had, I was told, we had the biggest slave auction yes, around yes well not actually there were maryland points out that there were slave pens all around the cotton office at perdido and carondelet and that even when Degas visits and it's after the war in the 1870s that he would have been aware that those were there so that whole area in the quarter is just permeated well, by the cbd and the but, cbd yeah. but but and the, also the quarter and the quarter, but the, this um, the uh, history of uh, all of these buildings is permeated by uh, slavery. And I actually heard a rumor. I did not put this in the essay that some of the mirrors at Antoine's come from the old St. Louis Exchange Hotel. Oh, that could and there's very probably well be. pieces of its body distributed um, throughout the French Quarter. So what I tried to do in this that essay was actually twofold. It was to walk you through. Um, the narrator and his wife's increasing apprehension about uh, the intransigence of the old South and how it would not give up on power and might and nostalgia for the past, but also at the same time to make the argument that this wasn't just about the South, that this was a transnational phenomenon during the Edwardian people where everyone was nostalgic for a past uh, that was not necessarily a moral past. And you talk about the... Um difference between human ideals and the reality with the... the I, I wrote about T.S. Eliot for uh, yes, one of my of theses. Of sure. <laughs> I thought between the <clears throat> idea and the reality falls the shadow. I mean, that seemed to describe to me what you were saying yeah. here with Galsworthy. Yeah. Thank you. And <clears throat> then uh, I guess maybe we'll ask Barbara about Richard Campanella. I mean, it's just... Somebody was asking me recently if if you could only recommend one book. You know, I've interviewed hundreds of you, esteemed authors, and if I could only recommend one book about New Orleans for a tourist or somebody who just, I said anything Richard Campanella writes. <laughs> it's true. And he, for you all, he wrote um, about the seeing the elephant, the interstitial space at Modern Bourbon Street. Well, he's, he's talking about how Bourbon Street has always been or how it became that, that place of ill repute. The kind of in-between space 
where, you know, people can come and experience the elephant, as if the 19th century expression goes, see the weird things, see the, the, uh, the experiences that push them over the edge. But he's talking about the way that New Orleans invited that kind of experience by its high granularity, the way that the buildings and the streets kind of come together in ways that push things together and that allow for a, a, a lot of interaction between people in ways that they encounter experiences that they might not have, uh, you know, unusual experiences they don't encounter elsewhere. Well, and also the the architecture of the buildings, again, with the alleys. Our, build, right. our buildings are so close together. I know we're supposed to have 10 feet in between buildings, which is... Not a lot of space between you and your neighbors, and mm-hmm. the streets are winding. They're not much more old world, much more old world. And also going back to Carrie Bernard's essay, who talks about the way the houses themselves adapt to those kinds of crushed spaces, and and then the the effects that it has on people's interactions with each other when your life is bound up by those spaces that force interactions. You know, you have a different kind of social dimension. And I think it's interesting what he says about this in regards to uh, to preservation and to social memory. So he's not saying that the spaces cause things, but they have a kind of an effect on how you remember. And if you take away spaces of memory, like uh, the Opera House burning down or even the St. Louis Hotel coming down, which had been there almost 70 years when you think about it, um, what happens to memory? You know, it's fluttering around. Where do you where do you locate memory? So I think he calls it uh, what do you call it? Three D interstitiality, um, <laughs> running throughout the French Quarter all the way to the edges of the city and and rampart, and then the other side out to the swamps. Um, and I think the notion that 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 contributed to how people thought about or understood New Orleans, and all the locals bought into it and sold it. And I think that's the interesting part of that essay, uh, that uh, the city uh, very eagerly sought out all these people who showed up and, and uh, sold them an image of the city. Well, the point you're making about preservation, I know my friend has a house there. <clears throat> They're so strict with the um carré now. You cannot paint your house. It has to be a certain color that would have been around in, you know, the, the 17 and 1800s. You have to preserve everything and have anything the eye can see it has to look the same you can't change it and i guess if we didn't keep such a strict eye i mean who would all we got is tourists <laughs> and, it'd be well, all hotels all the way yeah down. who would want to come to visit us if we just looked like wherever they were from right but one of the i mean i think that's where uh, chris shaberg's essay on airports is kind of interesting because what chris is pointing out is the way in which this kind of Interest, you know, the being authentic and being real and, and pre- that kind of preservation, the right kind of colors and those sorts of things at the same time intersect with this effort to sell the city. And then you have this artificiality. And, and after a certain point... Who it's can tell the to, difference? Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think John Klingman's essay is interesting actually there because he said you can't think about interstitial space in terms of freezing it into traditional architecture. Um, and he's really obviously he's a proponent of modernism and, and even postmodern architecture in the city. But I think he thinks of the notion as the interstitial as something that's culturally there, but you can use it in different kinds of structures. And you know, that, that trying to freeze the quarter or turn it into Williamsburg is not the way that we should go. Well, 
we can't talk about all of them. Maybe a couple, <laughs> a couple more. Um, I, I, as I said, I always learn a lot for the more I read. Um, the Beth Williams Willinger Willinger, Willinger. Um, where women live. I hadn't realized yeah. anything about that. That you know, where it was such a. Um, the world was so different a hundred years ago and women were supposed to be at home and men were supposed to be out in the world. And there were all these organizations that catered to women and not necessarily Storyville prostitutes. Right. There were other right. women that right. came right. to New Orleans. Well, I think what's interesting about Beth's essay, I mean, she wants to talk about um, kind of spatial control of women's lives um, and the ways in which they slip out from under those kinds of controls, even though these are conservative women. And the essay is really about precisely this construction of what's moral space and what's immoral space in New Orleans. And I, I love the little story. She slips in about Newcomb where the gals couldn't go walking down Canal on Sunday because they were afraid that either they'd be snatched or they'd be taken for prostitutes. Um, because Storyville, the prostitution houses close. were closed on Sunday. Close. Yeah, right. And, so, and the madams would go walking too. They said as soon as Storyville closed down, then the girls from Newcomb were allowed to walk around. <laughs> right. I love that story. But I think what struck me about the essay is uh, that these were very conservative women, and they end up doing something that was quite radical. So they create these homes for a variety of women, both those they feared were going to go into prostitution, but also for single older women who didn't have places to go. And they call them homes, and they were desperate to have them uptown, but they couldn't afford to always keep them uptown. Um, so they had to put them downtown, and the Herman Grimaud house was one of them, but it was also very close to famous bordellos. So how do you then keep their virtues secure? So they started doing things like job training, and they had a cafeteria there. So they were doing things that were, in fact, were quite radical uh, under well, the I aegis of being conservative. YWCA, because that was right, national. right. right. But I didn't realize there was a Catholic Women's Club, the Traveler's Aid Society, the Catherine, the Catherine Club. Club. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So many. But also what's interesting, too, is what Beth has to omit, and that's for women of color. Because there were clearly houses for them. There were virtuous young women of color coming to town who needed a place. But the records there have just about disappeared. And we, we she knows there were houses for those women, but there was very little record of them, where there's, there's a very extensive record on the... All these the, women kept good records. Well, you know, she does talk about the fact that there were several um, black male preachers organizations that put together homes for African-American women, but they weren't just... What I love, that they weren't just for African-American women. They were open to everybody. Well, um, on the subject of African-Americans, uh, one of the last ones you have, um, Angel Parham, who's just written so many... Uh, fascinating book about um, the the racial makeup American of, roots. <laughs> Just won a big prize. Oh, did it really? Yeah, it was wonderful. Um, anyway, her her theme is that there's a lot more um, mixed, racially mixed people in this country than maybe most of us think. Particularly, I think in New Orleans, uh, people are aware. Of, of the mixture, but she writes about Congo Square. Well, yeah, I love that essay, too. I think we're both very fond of that one. Uh, I think one of the things that Angel does, it's, the Congo Square is a wonderful example of in-betweenness or interstitiality in the city, because Congo Square is on the, on the edge of the city, it's on the swamp. It's not really essential to the city's, you know, grid or, or politic, 
except without that, it the city itself doesn't exist. And without the qualities that Congo Square brought to the city, which is basically that that marginality, that inter, interracial mixing, and also redefinitions of color as both blacks and whites struggle for control of the square, of the of Congo Square, and also for the definitions of who is black, who is white, who is permitted, who is not. And, and that kind of in-betweenness that Congo Square represents that defines the whole, I think is a marvelous example of, of interstitiality. Well, and the recovery of New Orleans as the seat of a kind of a diversity of blackness, which people think is happening now, but she's trying to do a recovery and say it's always been in the country and there are places uh, specifically like Congo Square in which you've always had this kind of diversity and that... Historical circumstances have helped kind of fix definitions of black and white that kind of squeeze Creoles out for a long time there. And also civil rights itself, you had to choose one side or the other. So she's really arguing that there's always been a kind of diversity and that New Orleans should be reread in those terms that are now being applied to the Caribbean and other places. Well, we can just touch on the future. Um, your last one, John Clark, is kind of a I guess you could call him a radical <laughs> ecologist. I yes. remember from Loyola his um, radicalness. Um, and and he, as many people have predicted, the water is rising. And what do we see as the future of New Orleans? Interstitial spaces or not, all of us. Well, you know, New Orleans is on the edge of the continent, and we are the uh, the canary in the mines here as the as the water rises and climate change occurs. And we've already had a hint of that with Katrina. And I think partly what John is riffing on is that idea that we have seen what it's like for a culture to break down and then and uh, allow those kinds of uh, unofficial places to open up. And for John, I think in some ways that's, it allows the system, it's an opportunity to break down the systems that have controlled and and confined uh, people, but also a way to open up new spaces. And I think he's kind of hopeful in the end about our possibilities. Yeah, I think a lot of people read that essay uh, as being very negative and apocalyptic, but he made it very clear to Barbara and me that he wanted to say there's a positive side, that apocalyptine means uncover, and that it has two sides, one which is radical destruction, but the other one which is radical possibility and transformation and the Garden of Eden, I think he puts it at the end of the essay. Let's let's hope that that's... (laughs) That's the way it ends up. <laughs> Better um, to, to look maybe more positive. Because now they're yes. talking, you know, 2045 when it was, yeah. you know, 100 years from now. Okay, but 2045, some of us might still be around. <laughs> maybe not me, but our children, certainly. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> well, it's a fascinating um, approach to take um, with all the tricentennial celebrations going on. This was a really refreshing and different look at it. And I wish you luck with... Um, with the book as it as it becomes more and more well known, um, we want you've been listening to Writers Forum, and we want to thank our guests this week, Teresa Toulouse and Barbara Ewell. Um, they're co-editors of Sweet Spots: In Between Spaces in New Orleans. I'm Sherry Alexander for WRBH. <laughs>